Over the last couple of years, it seems that the heightened political tension has led to a new outrage every day. Uh, and in some cases, obviously, for very good reason, lots of outrageous things going on. But sometimes, just sometimes, it seems like truly outrageous things might happen uh, right under our noses with no, not nearly enough attention paid. And uh, one of those issues, one that you would think would unite the right and the left, is corporate welfare, from big oil and big farm to the bailouts of uh, 2008 to the trillions of dollars uh, handed out in PPP last year. It seems that while the culture wars march on, the sheer amount and scope of corporate welfare continues and grows with nary a peep, at least not in the sense, or not in the proportion uh, which it deserves, not on our next speaker's watch. Uh, Joanne Norberg is one of the world's best advocates for human liberty and free markets. He's a wonderful communicator, um, a wonderful person. I feel really lucky to call him a great friend. Um, and his books continue to win awards and rave reviews for their, it's optimistic, but I would say well-sourced and grounded message and accessible uh, style. And his regular media appearances and documentaries show that his communication uh, skills extend beyond the written word. Uh, for after the um, lunch on the way out, we do have a copy of his, uh, not his latest book, but the latest book in which we have an English language version and documentary uh, by the back door for you on the way out. Uh, please welcome uh, Joanne Norberg. Thank you so much, Sally, my dear friend, and thank you, all of you. It's great to be here. It's actually great to be anywhere right now. Uh, I'm from Sweden. I haven't been let into the United States until Monday, November 8th. So, so Monday, November 8th, I was at customs waiting to be back here. And thank you for the, the warm, warm welcome. Um, I'm going to talk about corporate welfare and the documentary, Where's the Outrage, uh, about this. Uh, but first, we'll watch a clip from this show to give you a sense of what the kind of stories that we are looking into. And uh, it's a production by Free to Choose Network. And uh, we have the CEO and president of Free to Choose with us, Rob Chatfield, here today. And thank you so much, Rob, for always making sure that your team makes me look good in these movies and uh, for the fact that you managed to spread the word and get the message out there. This has been uh, broadcasted on US public television in the past few months. So that's an attempt to get these kinds of stories from our perspective to another audience that really needs to hear this message. So the clip we're about to see, it's about 10 minutes long. It's a little bit of the introduction, a little bit, little bit about the ending. And then it's about one particular kind of corporate welfare that most people don't think about as corporate welfare. Uh, because as Sally mentioned, there are so many different forms of uh, corporate welfare. Um, as Claudius puts it in Hamlet, uh, when sorrows come, they don't come single spice, they come in battalions. So often we think about subsidies, bailouts, and um, spe special tax exemptions and tariffs. But this story is about regulation and how regulation 
is often tailor-made to kill off the competition and protect the big ones. So let's start there. Let's roll the clip. More money from around the world is coming through Louisiana than almost anywhere else in the country. And you're like, okay, where is that money going? It's not going to my schools. It's not going to my roads. So what's happening? IKEA said, oh, we're interested in coming to the Memphis area. They also said, well, how much money are you going to give us before we decide whether we're going to come or not? We're paying for them to build luxury condos for the wealthy. This was not done democratically, and it was not done for the kids and the working people. It was done by a small group of people so that they could economically benefit $6 billion. Monies that could be flowing directly into classrooms and communities are somehow given as breaks to those who really don't need a break. They saw a small farm raising food locally. That gets people questioning a lot about what happens in industrial agriculture. But when you uncover what happened here, it's all about eliminating competition. Our money is going to these billionaires in order to give them a competitive advantage. It is really the antithesis of what capitalism should be. This is basically socialism for the rich. Every year, billions of tax dollars are handed out to businesses that don't need it. That's your money. My name is Joanne Norberg, and I've studied and written about the relationship between businesses and government around the world, most recently here in America. Your tax dollars are given to some of the largest companies in the world, and often given with little accountability. That's why some call it corporate welfare. America's corporate welfare system, with its tax exemptions, subsidies, and bailouts, is complex. But we'll tackle it head on. And we'll meet some people whose lives and livelihoods have been directly affected by these bloated programs. The individuals who pay the price. And you'll ask yourself, where's the outrage? The Hawkins Farm in Northeastern Indiana has been a working family farm since 1957. Today, Jeff Hawkins and his son, Sack, continue the tradition. So this is a 99-acre farm in Wabash County, Indiana, and uh, my dad and I farm together. Jeff and Sack raise hogs, cattle, vegetables, and poultry. They sell primarily to families and restaurants in the area. And in the summer, Friday is brick oven pizza night. We embody what people romantically think about when they think about a farm. You know, you know, big corporations put red barns and you know cattle out in green pastures, you know, on their labels. And we are that. <laughs> In 2018, more than 9 billion chickens were raised for their meat. About 30 companies control 95% of the $31 billion industry. And they process more than 150 million chickens each week. The Hawkins farm processes around 200 birds per week. The state of Indiana grants an exemption that allows small farmers to process their own chickens on the farm rather than sending them off to a large poultry processor. 
There are all sorts of regulations that need to be followed. We do a citric acid dip at the end, which helps with microbial issues, and they're put into a poultry chiller, which is a very powerful refrigerator so that pathogens are not allowed to grow. And it's a, a very safe, clean system. And to our knowledge, there has not been one recorded case of foodborne illness from birds that have been butchered under this exemption. And this exemption has been in place for around 50 years. Their chicken is off the chart, and uh, we've featured them since day one of the restaurant, basically. Pete Eshelman owns a four-star restaurant in nearby Fort Wayne, Indiana. He also runs his own farm to support the restaurant and buys food from local farmers. In 2015, the Indiana State Legislature invited Jeff and Pete to make a presentation on farmers' markets and local restaurants. And then I'm bragging about Hawkins, and I'm bragging about his chicken that is as good as the finest chicken you buy from in France. And he got up and talked about the great partnership. Uh, our next presenter is Jeff Hawkins from Hawkins Family Farms. Um, I come today as a fifth-generation Wabash County farmer. My son, who is my partner, is the sixth generation. But, that but they were in for a surprise. We finished our presentation, and the chair of the committee said, well, that's illegal. So she went to the Indiana State Department of Health, and she requested that they uh, issue a cease and desist letter. Both the Hawkins Farm and Pete Eshelman's restaurant received the letter. They immediately had to stop selling and serving chickens from the farm. When we first received the letter, I mean, I think it was overwhelming, and oh, we, we felt very helpless. The state attorney general soon declared it was in fact legal for the Hawkins to process chickens on their own farms. It seemed that the issue was resolved. But despite the ruling, certain senators drafted a new law in order to make it illegal. So that's how a hashtag was born. Hashtag keep chicken on the menu. Like if you've enjoyed this meal, will you please contact your representative? People were telling us they would call and they actually would lead with, is this about the chicken thing, when they picked up the phone. Not even hello. Yeah. Once again, Jeff, Zach, and Pete head to Indianapolis to testify. They basically came up with a story that small farms processing chicken on the farms is a health risk. Two weeks before we testified, there were there were two recalls back to back of something like four million pounds of chicken that had been inspected. By the end of that year, over eight million pounds of chicken had been recalled from major producers. In 2018 alone, there were 34 poultry recalls from the large producers. Remember, in over 50 years, there wasn't a single reported health issue with any small farms that were processing poultry under the exemptions but it didn't seem to move the needle much, and that suggested that, that safety wasn't fully the argument. Why was um, tiny little, uh, really unusual Hawkins Farm a threat? The opposing side was not only represented by state regulators, but also by large agricultural lobbying interests, including the Indiana Farm Bureau, 
the Indiana State Poultry Association, the Indiana Pork Producers Association, and the Indiana Beef and Cattle Association. At this point, we're dead in the water. But when you uncover really what happened here, and it took a while to figure this out, it's all about eliminating competition. So if at that time, the large poultry producers, they're very well organized, they saw a small farm that was operating legally to process chickens on the farm, that's competition to them. And so how is one farm gonna hurt these big producers of hundreds of thousands of birds, you know, uh, a year or more? It's because they don't want one farm, two farms, 100 farms, 500 farms, 1,000 farms. So the other thing is the value system associated with raising food locally, humane, drug-free, stress-free, you know where your food comes from, that gets people questioning a lot about what happens in industrial agriculture. It might be a use regulation to stifle competition thing. Nobody's declared that, you know. So draw what conclusions you will. The social media campaign continued to create enormous public pressure. So local politicians took a closer look without the influence of the agricultural lobbyists. Small farm owners were invited to meet with state agencies to redraft the bill. They brought us together with the Board of Animal Health and the Department of Health and kind of said, you know, what, what can we do to make this better? Is there a creative solution here? Remarkably, a revised bill was drafted to everyone's satisfaction. And then that bill did pass. Uh, so we are, yeah, we're under a new kind of regulation, but one that feels appropriate to what we're trying to do here. Right. It went from the worst form of government to try to put somebody out of business to actually an example how government works when you have the right people in place on all sides and you're willing to listen and kind of find common ground. We were braced for things to unfold the way they usually unfold, you know, for the small farm to lose the battle. But because people joined in the process, people called their representatives, they shared our story online, and um, I think that was to the surprise of everyone involved. Despite the efforts of large agricultural interests, the state government and local farm owners found a solution. In fact, the regulations were improved to better suit small farms while maintaining high safety standards. Now, restaurants like Pete Eshelman's can continue to serve locally sourced poultry, and neighbors have a choice in the food that they eat. Here in America, government regulation becomes corporate welfare. When big companies successfully lobby Washington, D.C., with the goal of shutting out their competition or to get special protections. And the politicians are no better. Regardless of political party, their campaigns are usually funded by these special interests. And this is how they return the favor. So the question is, who is lobbying for the taxpayer? The answer is no one. Excessive government business collusion is not good for America. Some feel the problem lies with big business. Others, that it lies with big government. But either way you look at it, the problem can be beat. In the end, it's the government that creates and enforces law. So focusing on policy change and the law is critical. Jeff and Zach Hawkins fought the state government with a social media campaign. 
is Baton Rouge fought for a seat at the subsidy decision-making table and won. In both cases, public exposure was key in changing how their state governments operated. And it also takes brave politicians, like those in New Zealand, who completely reformed their agricultural system to become a world leader without subsidies. Or those in the US who deregulated the trucking industry. What I've observed on the ground in country after country, and certainly here in America, is that it's better to let the economy evolve in its own natural way, bumps and all, rather than to rely on government intervention. As we've seen, when Big Brother decides to help big business, the cure is often more harmful than the disease. I'm Joe Norbert. Thanks for watching. Thank you. I didn't want to tell you this before because that would have been a spoiler, but one reason why I picked that particular clip is that it had a happy ending. Uh, it doesn't always, as I'm sure you understand, um, but it shows that the problem can be beat. We can do something about it. Mark uh, asked a while ago, how do we make it real? These ideas that we have about market forces, about wealth creation, about free trade, and this is our attempt to make those stories come alive and make them real to people and show them that it's not about just theory, this is about people of flesh and blood. So I'd like to think of myself sometimes as uh, the person who steals all the great, great research at Cato and just trying to repackage it and present it another way for another audience and to make those stories come alive. It's easy to talk about the costs of corporate welfare. We look at, for example, how not a particularly proud story to me as a Swede, but how IKEA, the big Swedish furniture story, gets a tax exemption uh, of 9.5 million tax break over 11 years to invest in Memphis, Tennessee, which sounds great for Memphis politicians because they could show, look, we got this IKEA store here and those jobs because of us. Um, but who pays the price? Well, we also then look at, uh, interview people at King's Furniture, the great American home store and other stores, and look at the competition, those who didn't get the tax break, those who in effect now have to pay more taxes to pay for their own competition. That's the kind of stories we are trying to, to tell in this film. And if you are interested, there are copies down there, DVD copies of this show. I happen to think that this is a particularly important issue because capitalism is a thing of beauty. Because it's the first system that made it possible for people to get rich only by enriching others, only to build fortunes by creating something that's better, cheaper, faster, more convenient to other people. All the other systems, slavery, feudalism, socialism, fascism, they were all based on a few people enriching themselves by stealing, by destroying, by exploiting others. Capitalism is the first system that creates mutual gain. And that's why this form of uh, corporate welfare is so damaging to the whole system of capitalism, to our economy. It's unjust, it's a drain on our economy, but it also distorts the whole idea of what the economy is for. 
Companies are supposed to compete over producing the best goods and services for people, not to compete over political influence, to distort the process and get the subsidies, the tariffs, the bailouts, the regulation tailored to their own needs to destroy the competition. That's not crony capitalism, that is socialism for the rich. And we're trying to expose it in various forms. I showed this particular clip to, partly because of the happy ending, but partly because I wanted to show that any kind of political system which is not exposed to market forces where people do not compete with people of freedom to choose when they don't risk their own resources can be distorted and can be bent to the benefit of a few big powerful players at the detriment to everybody else. And that goes for regulation as well. There's lots of regulatory capture going on out there. As P.J. O'Rourke once put it, when buying and selling are controlled by legislation, the first thing to be bought and sold are legislators. And that's what we're constantly seeing. Lobbyists running around in politicians' corridors to tailor those regulations to their own needs. And that's why we should be so suspicious when someone like say Mark Zuckerberg suddenly has an epiphany and says that yes, I think our industry has to be regulated. I think perhaps we should do something about Section 230 and, and, uh, and get on with it. Because yes, that would be a cost for his particular business, but he can afford it. He's got divisions of people, of moderators, who can just do compliance. But it would destroy any competitor that wanted to take the battle to him. Had we had rules and regulations like that in 2000, our biggest social media network would still have been MySpace, and Facebook would not have had a chance. So that's why we should be suspicious, even when the uh, solutions, the ideas, the proposals come from businesses. Because big business often love regulation. They are in a perfect position to handle it, but the more regulations, the more difficult for possible new entrants to make it into their sector. And this reminds me of Milton Friedman's theory of the natural history of government intervention. And it goes something like this. There is a real or a fancied evil, because there are real and fancied evils out there. And that leads to a demand to do something about it. Why don't the politicians do something to protect us, to protect the consumer, the worker, businesses. And then a coalition is built between sincere, high-minded reformers and do-gooders and equally sincere, interested parties. The preamble to the law later on talks about the public interest and the body of law grants power to government officials to do something. At this stage, the high-minded reformers, they declare victory, and then they move on to another area to look at another real or fancied evil that politicians should do something about. Who's left then when they move on? Well, the equally sincere interested parties are left there. The others, they glow of triumph and turn their attention to something else. But the sincere interested parties stay put and make sure that the regulations are tailored to their business models, to their processes, to their ways of doing things, to their technologies, to their goods, and so keep the competition away. Because they have the most at stake, and they have the most knowledge about these issues, and it's worth everything for them to capture the regulatory system.
So even programs with good intentions, and some of them that we're looking at, they are 100 years old by now, put into place to protect the farmer or to help particular businesses, they're still around. Uh, you know, nothing comes as close to eternal life here on planet Earth than government programs. They are still there and distorted after a while by these people who have the most at stake, as long as they're not exposed to market incentives from people who have risked their own money. And it finds its way into everything. And for a contemporary example, look no further than the infrastructure bill. Now, if you want to build a bridge, what do you do? Well, you're looking for someone who can build a bridge that's as good as possible for as low a price as possible, right? You don't go about trying to restrict the number of potential businesses and workers who can build that bridge to make sure that they're all unionized or something like that, especially not in a very restrained labor economy right now. And you certainly wouldn't go around trying to make sure that you get as little competition as possible and restrain all foreign imports and other foreign businesses from building this bridge through by American provisions and other protectionist attempts to limit competition. If you do that, if you try to restrict the number of companies, the particular kind of workers, the um, those who can get involved, then you're not building a bridge. You're building a constituency and you're building support for your own voting bloc and for the donors to your own particular party or candidacy. And that is going on everywhere, not just when we're building bridges, almost in any area that the government gets involved in. Nowadays, we don't just have corporate welfare by accident, we often have it by design. And that's the big new thing in politics right now. The idea of having a more active industrial policy where governments pick winners and try to nurture particular technologies and, and businesses to make sure that they can be powerful and strong and domestic and unionized in the, uh, in the future. And now we don't just hear that from the left and from technocrats, we hear that from the right from the national conservatives, who now talk about how we, in order to be China, we have to be China a little bit, and import some of their ideas about made in China, but turning it into made in Sweden or made in the US, to support particular businesses for particular purposes, to nurture certain innovation that politicians really believe in. Mariana Mazzucato, the famous Italian-American economist, she talks about moonshots. We need brave, charismatic politicians who talk about if we can put a man on the moon, certainly we can lead the world in, in AI or in um, building bridges or what have you, any kind of, of innovation or any kind of business. If we only support them, if we actively intervene to support the best businesses, the green technologies, the ones that create real manufacturing jobs for real men and so on. So industrial policy is back. And that is a terrible, terrible idea that lets corporate welfare in, not just through the back door, but through the really the, the main entrance. And there's actually a great Cato paper recently, it's down there by Scott Linsicum and Wang Zhu, about questioning industrial policy, because we've tried this before. We've seen this play out before, 
and it's always the same kind of results. Terrible, terrible results. Josh Lerner, an, an economist, he sat down to write a book about what governments can do to actively promote business and innovation. And he was so distraught and disappointed by the experience that so the book got the title Boulevard of Broken Dreams. Because what happens is that it distorts the incentives for everybody involved, for politicians, for bureaucrats, and for businesses. Governments are bad at picking winners, but losers are very good at picking governments and picking the pockets of taxpayers. Politicians don't act on markets, they don't react to market signals, they don't risk their own resources, so they're not always eager to sacrifice everything for a greater value later on. But they might be more interested in creating immediately uh, opportunities for jobs and photo opportunities uh, in the local constituency, to um, create it before the next election, to hang out with the cool new entrepreneurs rather than the introvert engineers who might do the real job. And against all reason and sanity, they want to make sure to put as much as possible in their own local constituency. So they rarely find neglected opportunities. Instead, they follow the herd. When Josh Lerner wrote his book, there were 49 American states who had public programs in place to try to attract biotech companies from other states. And I'm sure that by now, this was 10 years ago, uh, I'm sure that the last state also has such a program. And be sure that if one of those states succeed, then the uh, Mariana Mazzucatos and the new proponents of industrial policy will point to that and declare victory and say, look, this would never have worked without these active government interventions. But obviously, we shouldn't just pay attention to what is seen, but to what is not seen, the resources wasted, what would have happened had those resources went into other productive businesses chosen by market forces rather than politicians. Studies about subsidies for companies made by Cato scholars and others reveal that it does not result in more innovation, it does not result in higher productivity, not in an expanded workforce long-term or in better sales. The only big difference that they could point to was that those companies who got subsidies, they had higher turnover in one year, the year in which they received the subsidy. So it's not a moonshot, it's a sugar rush. And soon they'll be back for more money. At the Swedish Energy Authority, I got a great um, revelation of what is being done and how it distorts the incentives of those who fund these new ventures. They were looking for new green tech businesses to promote and to hand subsidies to. And since they had a fixed budget and they really had to pay out those resources, otherwise they wouldn't have it the next year, they said, or this guy said, what you do is you take the most credible application from a business and pay out to those guys. And if there is no credible application, you take the one that is least incredible, and then you pay them. And as he put it, we celebrated every time we got to hand out money to somebody, because that was their task. That was what they were supposed to be doing. They were acting according to the incentives. And so are the businesses when they get these resources. Because normally on an open free market with competition and price signals, you know exactly when to stop 
doing something. When to scale back or, uh, uh, or divest? You know that if the cost of the last produced item is higher than what you can sell it for, then you're in the wrong line of business and you've got to do something else. What happens with corporate welfare is that at that point, you turn to a bureaucrat like the one at the Swedish Energy Authority and you get a subsidy so that you can go on a little bit longer and a little bit longer, which means that suddenly it is rational for businesses to destroy capital. And it's rational for them to lobby to get even more resources, to get those subsidies, to destroy even more capital. That's the downward spiral of decay in corporate welfare. This ties up labor and capital that's needed in other places. And we get more zombie companies, companies that aren't really productive, but are very good at writing these credible applications and least incredible applications. Combined with stimulus and uh, very low interest rates, we have an increasing share of zombie companies in our economies all over the Western world. When you look at public companies, the IBS recently showed that zombie companies, those that don't make enough money to pay off, uh, pay for the capital that they've got, but are just getting extended lease of life all the time, has increased from around one out of 20 companies in the 1980s to one out of six companies before the pandemic, before all the new subsidies were rolled out at that time, and even more monetary stimulus going out there into the economy. And as they put it, if you increase the share of zombie companies in your economy by one percentage point, you reduce productivity growth by 0.1 percentage point, which means that a large share of the productivity problem in rich economies right now is based on precisely these kinds of policies. To me, there are only two alternatives. Either a business is competitive and productive, and in that case, it doesn't need our tax money, or it is not productive and competitive, and then it doesn't deserve our tax money. If we think that a particular venture could be a moonshot, something that is incredibly costly right now, but in the long run it'll pay off, and when they've managed to, to tweak production, turn it into routine manufacturing, and then they'll make lots of money. We already had to have a, a, a time machine by which we can pay them right now for their future results, and that's the financial market. It's already there to deal with all of those problems. We don't need any kind of policies to do that. When we get into politics, we only replace the decisions of multitudes, of investors, of customers, of competitive businesses. We replace that with the decisions of a few politicians and of a few civil servants and of government authorities. And why would they know better than all those millions who constantly act on markets? Why would they? Well, perhaps at one stage here or there, they might really know better. They might be that smart or they might really, really know what to do. Well, in that case, I think, I'm fine with it. Go ahead, but make sure that you first put your own money where your tax money is. Make sure that you, as a politician, if you really know that this is the future, then you should at least mortgage your home and take your sons and daughters' college funds 
and risk it in that investment before you force us to pay for that particular venture. If you look at technology history, it's not about moonshots. It's about experiments and it's about surprises. It's about strange new combinations, it's serendipity, it's trial and error, it's pushback, it's feedback, it's constant adaptation and change and tweaking and blood, sweat and tears. It's not committee plans, it's not smart bureaucrats seeing the future. Uh, I will try to make this point in a new um, video series, a video blog series that we're starting with Free to Choose Network actually in one week's time called New and Improved, where I will try to look at all the great inventions, all the great revelations from controlling fire and uh, inventing the wheel to the, um, to the light bulb and to AI and to the World Wide Web. It was not from the, the mind of a particular politician. It all came from experiments and from crazy entrepreneurs and from serendipity. New and improved launches on November 17. The attempts at really doing moonshots have normally failed. Do you remember Quero, the European search engine produced by the French and the German government? Uh, French Prime Minister Jacques Chirac presented this with German Chancellor Gerhard Schröder and said that now's the time to show the world that we can dominate this field of, uh, of search in the future because we have massive government investments and we have a huge conglomerate of 200 businesses and we are going to win the world. And, and for a while, Google was actually a little bit afraid they were going to do something. And no, you haven't heard about Quero, right? Uh, it actually failed to... They became uh, angry with one another even before they have decided what to search for. And it's actually precisely as you would have guessed. The Germans wanted something sort of very mechanical and with precise text results. And the French, they wanted to sort of a little bit more find anything, kind of even uh, inspirational sources and images and, and sounds rather than anything else. And they all hated one another and they just wasted everybody's money. Uh, if you want to look at a bigger uh, disaster, look no further than Germany's Energiewende, their attempt to go green and abolish nuclear power that Mariano Mazzucato, who talks about moonshots constantly, said, this is the next big thing, this is the next moonshot. Well, the thing that happened was that enormous resources spent and they reduced CO2 emissions less than other European countries, much less than the United States and other countries that didn't have a plan for it, but only lots of of um, talented entrepreneurs. Going to the moon might not have happened without government intervention. Not then, not in that kind of way. But the interesting thing is that precisely because of the political nature of that project, nothing more happened. We planted a flag and then we went back home. We didn't get space tourism, we didn't get asteroid mining, we didn't get solar power in outer space, we didn't get... Because it was a political priority, all those cost overruns were okay. We could do it because it was so incredibly important in the short run, and therefore it succeeded. But that's precisely why it didn't work in the long run. And that's why it's a terrible, terrible symbol of the new kind of industrial policy, because it wasn't even an industry built 
on that kind of a moonshot. It took the privatization of space. It took SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, and others to constantly experiment, trial and error, constantly changing route when they couldn't make it in a certain way, skip the cost overruns, and instead trying to make it as cheap as possible. So corporate welfare doesn't even work in space. Why would we expect it to work here on planet Earth? So the final question then is, what do we do about it? Well, personally, I find it difficult to blame companies for uh, if, if money is on the table. It would be difficult to explain to your shareholders why you don't take it. Some businesses in Silicon Valley, they took pride in not running politicians' corridors. And the result was that politicians tried to destroy them. And they had to send their lobbyists there to protect themselves. And then when you're there, you begin to tweak the process to tailor made it to your own production. So it's difficult to go that way. You can name and shame uh, companies like that, but I don't think that's really the way forward. The, but the way forward is transparency, to talk to people about this. Because you know what? When I show people this film, when I talk about these examples, people don't like it. They don't like their pockets being picked by big business or by, by lobbyists. So that's the answer to the question about where's the outrage. And that's one reason why I show this Indiana Hawkins family farm story as well, because transparency was the key. The moment that they started a public relations campaign and talked to people and told them that big farms were trying to destroy their beloved chicken, then people reacted and they wanted to stop it. So that's what we must do. We must talk about it. We must continue doing the research and present these stories and show people that this is what is going on. If you're not at that table, you are on the menu and they will pick your pockets and people hate it and that's the answer. There's the outrage. Thank you. And thank you, we now have time for Q&As, and there are two roving microphones, and please wait for the microphone to I already have come it. around. <laughs> I actually have a solution for this, Good. and it's being worked on now, and it's the ballot issue. Legislators are never going to vote against corporate welfare, but the public will. And FreedomWorks, along with Goldwater Institute, they're now analyzing states to figure out the best state to get an anti-corporate welfare ballot issue on the ballot. And once we take it to one state, then we can get it on a lot of states. So I think that's where we're gonna end this because not only are we outraged, but the left is outraged. Yeah. And the public will vote against this if given a chance. So the ballot issue. I think you're absolutely right. And yes, this is an area where we can build strange new coalitions because we might not have the same opinion about businesses as the left, but they don't like big businesses picketing pockets either. And this attempt is incredibly encouraging, and that could really change things and get the conversation going, and then it'll happen in more states, definitely. So I, I wish the whole project the best of luck. Over there, I think. Okay. Sure, thank you. Uh, I guess my question is, it's a broad one, 
you know, we saw success in Indiana, but we, and, and FreedomWorks has a great idea with the ballot initiative. If you were to pick sort of the best return on investment at targeting corporate welfare, you know, what really bothers people in multiple states and costs money and is a battle we could win, what might you pick as something that the public could take on, that motivated activists and, you know, ex really interested businesses could work together and actually make a change on, given that so many are so hard? What would your pick be? Well, that's a very good question because I'm not sure it's always related to the nature of corporate welfare, but more about who pays the price and the particular victims for this particular form of corporate welfare. And that depends. We are storytelling <coughs> people. And if we have those good stories, then it could be a tariff story. It could be a bailout. It could be a particular subsidy. Uh, one thing that I do think, though, uh, that people react to now quite a lot is this kind of attempt by businesses to uh, stage beauty contests between different states and get them to offer as much as possible to, to invest there. And uh, I don't really think businesses uh, need that. Uh, when you look at the research that's been done, that's rarely what decides on, on where to go. But it puts more money on the table. Uh, Companies go where they have a good business climate, a good workforce and low taxes and good regulatory setting, then that's just the icing on the cake in a way. But it's incredibly costly for all these states to engage in it. And if 50 states have programs to attract biotech companies from other American states, then it's really such a tremendous waste of money that anybody can understand that, I think. And doing something about that, I think, is important. And, and what you could do is, uh, I mean, there's a simple solution. States could, um, could sign into, uh, declare that they will sign into law a uh, ban on these particular forms of welfare for companies whenever other states do the same thing. So have an interstate compact, an agreement whereby they decide, let's not try to beggar thy neighbor and, and hand money to, to businesses to go to a particular place. I think that's one area where I, I notice that people instantly agree that, yeah, that's the way to go about things. So uh, AOC would agree with your early introduction of uh, corporate welfare paying off people to move into your city. Um, but on a different subject, I see the environmental movement, and I was an early contributor to uh, Sierra Club and Friends of the Earth, but I've seen it taken over by crazies. We have a, a strategic interest in being able to mine lithium. We have lithium here, but the mines were closed a long time ago because of pressure from environmentalists, and other people. We had lithium in, uh, in Afghanistan, but we lost that opportunity. So the Chinese have even more lithium to, uh, to sell to us. How, what do you see as a solution from government action to make it possible for private companies to mine lithium in the United States? Where's the line that you would draw between paying them off or, or everybody, all the, all the friends making money in a, in a corporate uh, payoffs and actually serving a need that the country could say is a strategic need. As that's a very important uh, field of um, 
of policy right now because it's so incredibly counterproductive. One of the reasons why lots of people are now suddenly interested in industrial policy again is this fear that we're too dependent on, say, China in certain supply chains for certain goods. Uh, and that's not a good thing, being dependent on a, the world's biggest dictatorship in, in that way. But it's very much overblown, and uh, uh, Scott Lincecum at Cato, for example, has, has looked into this, has got great material on this. Uh, the European Union has recently done an, a study of its supply chains of uh, tens of thousands of various goods that are important for, um, for any kind of, of self-reliance, and come up with as few as around 10 goods that we are really dependent on the Chinese for, where it's difficult to find alternatives. And that's metals and minerals. And that's exactly what we need for the green transition as well. And then the problem is that the same kind of politicians are implementing all, while they are using this dependency as a pretext to hand out subsidies for particular companies, and it could be semiconductors or, or what have you, where we really don't need it. At the same time, they are blocking all the kinds of investments that we need to get these minerals and metals ourselves in our own backyard. So it's incredibly counterproductive. And um, I think that this is a way to, to where we could really use this uh, fear of dependence on, on China to to liberate our own markets and our own abilities back home. Because that's really what it's all about. They, nobody else is going to dominate the world. If we were really successful, innovative, productive, and we made use of the resources we've got back home, it's only when we sacrifice that healthy, dynamic economy that, that we will lose, uh, lose global leadership. So this is an area where we are going to have to do more things. What I do think is going to help us is the price increase in many of these areas. That will put pressure even on local uh, decision makers and politicians to begin to open up some of these places in, in, uh, and mines in the US and in Sweden, where we also need it. Do we have a microphone over there? Uh, thank Any you, that was fascinating. First of all, I have to challenge your assertion that we got nothing out of sending a man to the moon. Any pro-government advocate could tell you that we got Tang and a non-stick frying pan. <laughs> but I, I think your point stands, as a good friend of mine pointed out once, if you wanted to invent a non-stick frying pan, flying a man to the moon may not have been the most efficient way to go. <laughs> well, my question is, I live in New York, and most of my neighbors and the entire Biden administration would listen to this presentation and say, all you're describing is a, a system of systemic oppression. You're just going to increase equity, inequity. So what would you say to that? Or more importantly, what should I say to that? Uh, first of all, let me just say something about this frying pan. Because uh, I think it's really useful. Uh, perhaps it was a bit expensive <laughs> to develop, but this is really important because this is one of the main arguments from the new proponents of industrial policy. They're saying that, look at all the things the government touched in one way or another. Look at all the things that happened almost by accidents when you were trying to do something else. And obviously they are right. Those unintended consequences are there. That's what happens when you spend billions of dollars on anything. 
you'll see lots of unintended consequences and you'll spur innovation in new sectors and in other places. And the comparison that I, but, but it's very different from a moonshot. It's not that you're saying, look, we need this non-sticky frying pan and let's now spend billions. It's that it happened by accident when we were doing other things. So I often tell the supporters of industrial policy that uh, they should look at the porn industry, uh, at the, the industry of pornography, because everybody who is non-biased and looks at technology history knows that the porn industry has been incredibly important in developing and in distributing new technologies from the printing press to the VCR to the internet to um, uh, now virtual reality and things like that. If you had the same perspective as the industrial policy guys do, then you would say, let's hand more money to the porn industry. Because, you see, they've touched all these kinds of inventions all the time. And if we handed them more money, I mean, the government has 30 to 50% of our GDP. The porn industry doesn't. If they had 30 to 50%, we'd see not just frying pans, we'd have an explosion of creativity, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but, but the reason why that would be mistaken, apart from the, uh, uh, the obvious problem of, of uh, forcing people to pay for porn, um, is that it didn't come about as a, a result of the sort of the annual committee of the porn producers, that they decided, yes, we need now VCRs and spread them around the world. It happened because of trial and error and chaos in the market and response from customers and other businesses and pushback and feedback, and then suddenly we got these inventions. Uh, so that is how you produce results and innovation, not through committees, neither when it comes to moonshots or porn. But the, but the question to pose to them is, is there anything that the government can do that the porn industry couldn't? And if, if you can find something like that, then I'd be interested in hearing about it. Um, yes, what do you tell your um, pro-Biden friends uh, about that and, and that kind of uh, injustice? I'd say, well, good luck in trying to make the world a fair place where everybody gets, gets the same hearing and the same influence over uh, decisions. Uh, if you can manage to do that, yes, the process would be more smooth. But having looked at all kinds of systems around the world throughout history, I've never found anything that has as little uh, of, of that kind of distorted power structures as the one that we're living in right now. But that's still not enough because whenever somebody gets power, they will distort it and abuse it for their own benefit. So the only way to get rid of it is to get rid of that power, not to try to sort of reform mankind, <laughs> but, but have that unreformed mankind left, but don't leave them with all the abilities to put their hands in other people's pockets. Is that the last question? Yes, but it was wonderful to, <laughs> to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Johan, and very importantly, thank you to all of you for coming out today. Uh, it's great to be back, and uh, we look forward to resuming our regularly scheduled program of events here in New York. Um, yes, delighted to see you. Thank you for coming. That concludes today's program. We look forward to seeing you soon. Don't forget your book and your uh, copy of the documentary. Thank you. Thank you.